Hey there, it's me, Malika Bilal. Today on The Take, we're bringing back a story that showed what an American gun rights advocacy group, the NRA, a fringe far-right Australian political party, and $20 million had in common. These odd bedfellows were the subject of a documentary made by Al Jazeera's investigative team, a film that was three years in the making. It gets inside one of journalism's most audacious stings. How they got the story is almost as wild as what they found. So once again, I'm turning the show over to Jeremy Young and Peter Charlie from the network's investigative unit to tell you the rest. I'm an Australian citizen, born and bred in Australia. Um, I started work as a journalist on an Australian newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, and moved into television from there. For the past five years, I've been based in Washington, D.C., as executive producer of Al Jazeera's North American Investigative Unit. And in that capacity, I launched this particular investigation. For three years, Al Jazeera has been investigating the pro-gun lobby, filming with hidden cameras inside America's National Rifle Association. How are you guys? The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. This all started when I was driving one day from Washington, D.C. to uh, Dulles International Airport. And uh, I drove past the NRA National Headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. And uh, I looked across at that building and thought, what on earth is going on in there? Why don't I find a way to infiltrate that organization, uh, to get someone inside there with concealed cameras and to engage people at the NRA in discussions about things like mass killings and what they really think and how they really feel about the things that they never talk about publicly. That's how it all began. Did you know at that time how you were going to go about doing it, how you were going to go about infiltrating the organization? Well, I had a thought there and then about building a Trojan horse, if you like, a unit uh, that would appeal to the NRA, that would speak their language, and um, came up with the idea of creating a pro-gun organization based in Australia. I understand that the landscape with access to firearms in Australia is very different than the United States. Can you explain that a little bit? In 1996, in Australia, there was a massacre in the town of Port Arthur in the state of uh, Tasmania, little island state down the south. The death toll continues to rise at Port Arthur, where a gunman today went on a random shooting spree. The nightmare unfolded around half past Police two this afternoon. A man a using an AR-15 assault rifle killed 35 people. Stormed around the area unchallenged, picking his victims indiscriminately. I'd never heard a gun before, so my immediate thought was that it was a car backfiring. And then I saw him, and he had this massive, very large military rifle. And he was coming up behind my daughter. No one's running, no one's screaming, but with every shot that's fired, there's another life gone. 
and there's another life gone and there's another life gone. He walked past myself and my daughter. I'm on the floor. He shoots me in the back and he shot my daughter in the back of the head. That was such a shock to Australia. We'd never really experienced anything of that nature. The then Conservative Prime Minister actually risked uh, losing some of his political base by forcing through very rigid gun control laws. Prime Minister John Howard revealed his plans for strict new gun laws in the federal parliament late today. We need to achieve a total prohibition on the ownership, possession, sale and importation of all automatic and semi-automatic weapons. They came through very quickly, a matter of weeks, banning automatic and semi-automatic guns. And um, since then, it's very, very difficult to get a hold of a gun in Australia. Very difficult. But the correlating evidence is that there have been no mass killings. There have been no killings of people unknown to the assailant. Uh, so those laws were uh, applauded and remain a cherished part of Australia to this day. Did you know that the NRA would be interested in gun policy abroad beyond the borders of the United States? Well, I'd, I'd been looking at the NRA for some time anyway, um, just uh, paying attention to their rhetoric. And I'd noticed in a lot of their messaging that they were very aggressive towards Australia and its position on guns. It's the left-wing anti-gunners who literally point to Australia as this shining model as to why we need gun bans and gun confiscation. They and I need every gun owner and freedom-loving American to join us in this fight now. Do you want Australia-type confiscations? And I thought, if there's an organization in Australia that sings from the same hymn book, so to speak, uh, the NRA would most likely welcome them in. So you started this group, Gun Rights Australia. It was a very public group. You weren't accepting members, but you were uploading videos to the internet. You guys had a strong social media presence. Hey guys, Roger Muller here from Gun Rights Australia. We don't have How did you go about finding the person to lead the organization? I settled in the end after talking to a number of people on someone I've known for 20 years or more, Roger Muller, uh, someone who lived in the neighborhood I lived in, in Sydney, Australia. Well, I've got a special guest today, Steve Dixon, who's the head of the One Nation Party here in Queensland and a Senate candidate. How are you doing, Steve? Absolute pleasure to meet you. Lovely to meet you. So, Steve, can you tell me a little I bit I thought Roger just ticks all the boxes. Policy. He's uh, well, gutsy, we are, we are rather jovial, a lovable rogue. He loves a beer, he loves football. He's got a lovely way with people. He can walk into a room and put everyone at ease. To me, they were all the ideal qualities for somebody who I was going to deploy into a very risky and complex assignment, wearing uh, concealed cameras. He pretty much said yes on the spot. So you're prepping Roger for his first big test. He's basically going to infiltrate the 2016 annual meeting in Louisville, Kentucky for the NRA. At this point, does Roger even know how to shoot a gun? Not really. Uh, he knew very little about guns and needed to be educated. 
I had flown Roger to London to have him trained in the use of minuscule concealed cameras, in the use of guns, and the ethics of journalism. And I was right there with him as we entered that Louisville, Kentucky convention. And on day one, it was a day of some trepidation. You know, the cameras might somehow be exposed or detected. Um, The lenses themselves are very, very small, the size of a pinhead. I was worried that a wire might pop out from his, under his lapel or through his shirt. So what do you want? He went to work, shaking hands, uh, introducing himself and getting to know members of the NRA. And that was the very first toe in the water. Here in Louisville, Kentucky at the NRA annual meetings, I'm very pleased to have with us uh, Roger Muller, who is here all the way from... Sydney, Australia. My goodness gracious. He was interviewed by NRA TV, so he was off to a fine start. And this is your first NRA annual meeting? The first annual meeting. And, it's and it just got very big got from there. Do they have anything like this in Australia? Absolutely not. We've got the uh, odd uh, kind of gun meet, uh, swap meet, but nothing like this. And now you're the founder and the president of Gun Rights Australia, right? Gun rights, that's correct, Gun Rights Australia. Did he meet anyone on that initial trip that became beneficial for him later on? He met Chris Cox, the head of the NRA ILA, the Institute for Legislative Action, most concerned with uh, working with Congress and uh, making sure legislation matches their philosophy. Now, you may wonder if it's possible to keep politicians honest about our gun rights. Well, absolutely it is. Because if not, we'll make them find another line of work. He met Chris uh, and a number of other key players, and uh, he used those contacts to climb further into the organization. At that convention, the endorsement was presented for Donald Trump as a presidential candidate. Ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, Donald Trump. When that endorsement was made on the stage, the crowds just went nuts. And that really drove it home to me. And I realized the magnitude of the task. Did Roger have to also pose as a Donald Trump enthusiast? Yeah, he he went all the way. He joined the NRA, as I did. And he was playing that role absolutely all the way down the line. So after that, Roger travels back to Australia. And how does the investigation proceed from there? The way I was running it, whenever he was able to organize another meeting, I'd bring him back to DC. He would tell the NRA that he was there on business, uh, that he's a you know, successful traveling businessman frequently in Washington. And he would um, turn up at meetings. It's on, recording. It's recording. Yeah. And record them. Send it off, just hit that little on the left. Uh, so I sent him back and forth from Australia to the United States several times. Are you recording already? Okay, cool. Eventually, we found ourselves dealing with an Australian political party, which is not what we had expected at the outset. And this political party is called the One Nation Party. Can you tell me a little bit about the One Nation Party and and who they are and and what issues they represent? The One Nation Party is a right-wing Australian political party founded by Pauline Hanson, 
They're now officially known as Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party. You can take a critic's view or join Pauline Hanson's One Nation and fight to uphold the Australian way of life. Based in the state of Queensland, a very conservative state, strongly anti-emigration, pro-gun. They claim to represent the what Australians call the battlers, the, the strugglers, people who don't have a lot of money, the less educated, conservative people, angry about immigrants coming in. They don't like Chinese people. They don't like Muslims. They're worried about the future of Australia. There's a sense of, of losing that white identity, that white nationalism for the party. Very much so. And uh, they're very open about it. I'm very proud of Australia as it is in our culture and our heritage that we have here. I do not want Australia to become Asianized, and I'm sure no Asian country would like to see their country become Australianized. How did the One Nation Party become involved in an investigation about guns? I spotted a story reporting that an NRA-affiliated group had funded the One Nation political party. And I wondered whether that was the beginning of a thread that we should explore. So I sent Roger Muller in to meet the One Nation people. How did you get Roger into the same room as them? How, how did that introduction take place? There was a function in uh, a town in uh, New South Wales in Australia. I want to achieve something for the people and what I believe in for this country. And Roger simply turned up to the function, introduced himself to Pauline Hanson's chief of staff. He uh, indicated that he believed the gun control laws were too strict. It was in that conversation that One Nation's chief of staff, James Ashby, said, uh, I'd like to meet the NRA. That began a conversation uh, that led to Roger setting up meetings at One Nation's behest. So Roger contacts the NRA, and they're open to meeting with the One Nation officials. How did your story change at that point? Well, it suddenly became a story about a, an Australian political party wanting to connect with the NRA rather than just the infiltration of the NRA. This is a line of inquiry we had to pursue. There was no question in my mind at all. And through Roger, you have a seat at that table to be able to witness those conversations up close and personal. Exactly. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Roger. We were recording with multiple hidden cameras. Uh, in some meetings, we had as many as nine rolling. You remember how you were feeling when Roger was on the inside and you were on the outside waiting for him to come back from these meetings? Well, I was always very nervous, very nervous. Roger was our, was our man. He was our eyes and ears. And uh, the One Nation Party proved to open even more doors for us and to lead to even further unguarded conversations. In fact, the NRA was only too willing to share their playbook with One Nation uh, on matters such as how to manipulate the media. If it's a bad story, like if a, a child gets hurt or shot with mm -hmm. a gun, they want to drag our name into it. And we will not comment because we don't want our name in that story. There was one particular meeting where Roger and the One Nation representatives um, were meeting with the NRA PR team. So we generally just won't comment. The PR people were giving very explicit advice on how to respond to a mass killing. Offense, offense, offense. And that is an effective communication strategy. 
How dare you stand on the graves of those children to put forth your political agenda? Yeah. How dare you use their deaths to push that forward? Mm. Mm. That's really good. That's a great one. Yeah. Um, and that's what the NRA does very well. They revealed that they ghostwrite columns uh, claiming to be local law enforcement representatives, but in fact it's the NRA. They just use someone else's name uh, to push the message that more guns are good. And this is the message that they were pushing for one nation to take back to Australia. Did it dawn on you? Did you realize at that moment that you were doing something that no one had ever done before, that no one had ever recorded these kinds of unvarnished conversations about the NRA's strategy before? Yeah, I knew we were breaking new ground here. Um, I knew no one had infiltrated the NRA. No one had penetrated that fortress. All of this is remarkable, but what happens next is really shocking. The One Nation Party goes to the NRA and other groups in Washington to ask for money. A lot of money. What sort of number are you guys thinking? I'm thinking 10. No, I was thinking 20. 20? Sorry. $20 million. And at a few of these meetings with the NRA officials, they're asking, what groups have this kind of money? Who should we meet with? Yeah, go to that one. Get lots of money. They get an answer. They get a group that they should go meet with. They said, why don't you meet Coke Industries, which is uh, the very large energy group run by the Koch brothers. They, they have more money than God and Jesus and Mohammed all put together. Charles and David Koch are these billionaire brothers in the United States that are huge political fundraisers. They're devoted to libertarian and conservative causes, and they've worked with the NRA on political campaigns. They suggested the Koch brothers uh, or Koch Industries might be willing to provide funding to One Nation. Um, so the NRA put One Nation in touch with Koch Industries. There's so much hand-wringing going on in the United States about Russian interference in the U.S. elections. And at the same time, a conservative group like the Koch brothers is talking about pushing money into an Australian election. A meeting took place within days. This meeting is with Catherine Haggett, a lobbyist for Koch Industries and a veteran in Washington, D.C. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. Hey. Catherine, And did they openly ask her for money? Yes, they did. It's going to get down to money at the end of the day. Whatever you could do would be fantastic. I'm not familiar with your election financing rules, regulations. I, I'm not familiar with Australia and sort of how that, what culturally how that's viewed and what sort of money you're allowed to take. Or I, Just help me understand that better. There are no set limits on donations. And they were assured by the One Nation visitors that it was in fact legal. But whether or not any money ever changed hands is something only One Nation and Coke Industries will ever know. The One Nation officials and Roger head back to Australia, and at this point, you know that you've got an investigation. You know that you've got a story. What do you do with Gun Rights Australia? What do you do with Roger Muller? What are the next steps? I sent Roger back to Australia, and um, then I started writing the documentary. And we should say Australia's parliament voted to ban foreign donations just shortly after you guys got back. 
So, Peter, you're editing these documentaries, and something terrible happens. The uh, sheikh was giving the sermon on Friday praise, and it was 1.42, and the gun starts shooting. And, you know, it just came in. Was this was the massacre at two different mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. 51 people were killed. It made headlines the world over in a country that's known to be safe. Do you remember where you were when you found out about it? I was sitting in a hotel room in Sydney writing this documentary. I was devastated to hear that, absolutely devastated. I mean, the, the gunman uh, is an Australian. Um, it's not possible to get those guns in Australia. Um, so it could be argued that he went to New Zealand because they had lax gun laws. They did. They don't any longer. I know how this process works when you're doing one of these investigations and it comes time to tell the people who are going to be in the documentary about the documentary and giving them an opportunity to respond. Normally you send letters to all these people. Do you remember how you were feeling as you were sending these letters off and notifying the individuals about the existence of the film? When I hit send, uh, I knew that was going to have a massive impact when they opened those emails. But they chose not to respond. So the documentary comes out. It's on the front pages of newspapers. It's leading the telecasts in Australia. And then they do decide to respond. They called a press conference um, and they accused Roger Muller of being a spy, um, having been sent in by the state of Qatar to infiltrate a political party to sway the electorate uh, in the lead up to an election. This trip has been organized by Roger Muller who again, I want to make this point very clearly, was employed by a Middle Eastern country, Al Jazeera, to come to Australia as a spy to infiltrate into Australian politics. They indicated that they'd called on ASIO, uh, which is uh, Australia's version of the CIA, uh, to investigate me and Roger. Uh, and they also had called on the Australian Federal Police, uh, Australia's FBI, if you like, uh, to also investigate Roger and me. I note ASIO and the Federal Police because I have personally asked them to investigate this matter and I am awaiting... I've had no from contact from either of those groups, uh, although I'd, I'd be happy to um, discuss with anyone what we got up to. They also presented another excuse for their behaviour in the United States. They claimed they were drunk. They claimed they were drunk. They, they said in their typical Australian way. We'd arrived in America, we'd got on the source, we'd had a few drinks, and that's where those discussions took place. Not with any Al Jazeera's come under a bit of criticism for the role that Roger Mueller played in this investigation. And some people have said if Roger Mueller hadn't connected the One Nation officials with the NRA officials, that this would have never taken place. How do you respond to that? I don't think there's any way we could have found out what we did without using the methods we employed. And, um, you know, I'm quite um, happy with the way we moved forward with that. There are some times when such drastic measures uh, are warranted. Uh, and incidentally, the uh, Australian Journalist Code of Ethics, the MEAA, the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance, 
has a provision that uh, allows for the ethical constraints that would otherwise apply to be overridden um, if the public good or the public interest is sufficiently large, uh, which of course it was in this instance. And you feel it was in the public interest to know what the NRA was doing behind closed doors when these massacres were taking place? I, I, I very much believe that. I believe, uh, you know, we uh, have a right to know what the biggest gun lobby group in the United States, arguably in the world, uh, thinks and feels about mass killings. Did your investigation impact one nation's standing within the Australian political system? Yeah, in this instance, uh, the Prime Minister shifted his preference for one nation to put it further down the ladder of preferences. There have been a number of um, potentially damaging political outcomes uh, following this documentary, but just how it impacts on their success or lack thereof in the election, we can't tell at this point. Next time you're driving out to Dulles Airport and you go by NRA headquarters, what thoughts are going to go through your head? It's been a very interesting experience learning the way the NRA thinks, the way they operate, uh, the way they issue guidance and advice. Uh, I was surprised how readily they guided and advised a foreign political party. Um, the veil has been pulled back to some extent for the first time. And that's the take. But before we go, Steve Dixon, the leader of the One Nation Party, resigned from his position. Not for the reasons you may think. After Al Jazeera's documentary aired, footage broadcast on Australian television that was recorded by the documentary team showed him at a local strip club in Washington, D.C., grabbing at a dancer and saying disparaging things about women. You can watch the documentary How to Sell a Massacre on aljazeera.com. There is a link to it in the show notes for this episode as well. And you can read more about the story in Peter Charlie's new book, also entitled How to Sell a Massacre. You should also subscribe to Al Jazeera Investigates, a podcast devoted to unpacking the biggest stories from the investigations team. Next week, Peter will be on there talking to our colleague Kevin Hurton about the aftermath of the NRA sting. Just search for Al Jazeera Investigates wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Dina Kisve, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, Nay Alvarez, Morgan Waters, and me. Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana is our team's engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Peter Charlie, Jeremy Young, and our investigative team. We'll be back. <laughs>